Hello, and welcome to episode four of the LCLC podcast. The first season of this podcast is devoted to compiling an oral history of the Louisville Conference on Literature and Culture, or the LCLC, a conference that began back in 1972 here at the University of Louisville and continued without interruption for 48 years until the cancellation of the 2021 conference due to the COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Matthew Biberman, and I decided to start this podcast after I was tapped to be the conference's new director in the summer of 2021. This podcast exists as my way both to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the LCLC, an event that will happen with our 2023 conference, while also learning what I need to know to ensure that the conference has continued success into the future. In this episode, the first of a two-part interview, I talk with Stanley Fish, who delivered the critical keynote at the LCLC's 2006 conference. Currently, the Florsheimer Distinguished Visiting Professor of Law at the Cardoza Law School at Yeshiva University, Stanley Fish began his academic career in the English department at the University of California, Berkeley. Fish then became the Keenan Professor of English and Humanities at Johns Hopkins, where he taught from 1974 to 1985, before becoming Arts and Sciences Professor of English and Professor of Law at Duke University. He was then Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Illinois from 1999 to 2004. Professor Fish is a prolific author, having written over 200 scholarly articles and books. Fish is that rare intellectual whose voice extends beyond the academy, and his commentary often appears in public forums the world over, though perhaps most frequently in the New York Times, where his opinionator blogs excite intense debate. My own association with Professor Fish dates back to my graduate school days, where I was fortunate enough to have him as the director of my doctoral dissertation, a project I completed in 1998 before then revising into my first scholarly monograph, Masculinity, Antisemitism, and Early Modern English Literature. I began our discussion with the question I'd like to ask all my guests here on the LCLC podcast. What do you remember about your visit to Louisville? I remember it very, uh, very fondly, but I don't remember the content of my talk. You can perhaps, you can perhaps refresh my memory. Well, I too remember it uh, very fondly. I remember getting you at the airport and uh, at that time I, I had my, my father was living with me and I had his grand marquee and I picked you up in the grand marquee and that was, that seemed to suit you. I remember you, you were able to cross your legs in the right. front seat and, and, uh, and we drove around, I gave you a little tour of the city and two other students of yours, Ben Saunders and Graham Hamill came in and we, we gave a panel together in your honor. Oh, right, right, right. Very nice. You shared the podium with Kerry Wolf, and his talk focused on animal rights, something that he's very well known for writing on, and how questions of belief and interpretation, that is what constitutes an animal versus what constitutes a human, and then something that the two of you kind of come together on, which is legal issues, that the legal issues that follow from that distinction uh, sets up issues such as extinction for animals. And he, he proceeded to uh, give a talk in that direction. And then you gave a talk 
about Credo. The title of the talk was oh, yeah. Credo, and you you were in a a jag at that point of talking about uh, Credo as a sense of that when you boil down arguments and you go down the anti-foundational road, you end up at a first principle that is belief itself. Oh yes, now I recall. So did I did I do an adequate job there of summarizing yes, your you talk? Did. Thank you. Okay. Um, so what what else do you remember about your visit to Louisville? Now those are the main things. I, I do remember liking the town. Um, mm -hmm. And if I'm correct, a friend of mine happened to be in town that I, I was able to see him and that was nice. Mm -hmm. Um, I do remember, uh, a couple of other, uh, things that, that happened on that visit that, um, stand out in my, my memory. One was that this was February, 2006. So we, we weren't too far into George W. Bush's second term and we were having dinner uh, Graham Hamill, Ben Saunders, myself, and you. Um, and I asked you for your read on contemporary American politics, that as a then relatively young man, it seemed to me that the American experiment in democracy, particularly in the still relatively new post 9-11 surveil surveillance phase, it seemed to me that the wheels were coming off of democracy and your feeling at the time was that this was pretty normal for you. Uh, and I wonder if you would update us as to what you think of the state of American democracy as you and I are talking now in 2021. Yeah, I'm sure I, what I said to you back in 2006 uh, was, as you indicated, uh, that these fears uh, uh, reoccur. Uh, in American history at various points um, uh, during you know, the ascendancy of the Know-Nothing Party in, in the 19th century uh, or the frenzy um, about uh, Bolsheviks and communists uh, in the 30s, uh, 40s uh, and 50s, uh, the sense uh, that the Supreme Court was not uh, advancing the causes of justice and freedom as one would hope uh, they would do. Uh, but that I said then, I'm sure, nevertheless, the Republic seems to persist, uh, largely because the basic institutions um, that carry us, that uh, the vehicle of our aspirations, even uh, when they seem to be bumbling along um, and barely proceeding, uh, those institutions are still strongly uh, in place. Uh, and I can see reasons why someone today might think that that view uh, has been challenged by recent events. And that, for example, distrust of the press has never been as, uh, as venomous um, as it is uh, now. Uh, the general unwillingness to accept uh, expert opinion in almost uh, any area, area and a uh, turn to what we might call epistemological populism, uh, 
which uh, is a movement that uh, that that gives uh, nationwide uh, force to the old and I think a horrible statement, my opinion is as good as yours. And so it seems to me that there's an argument to be made that we now live in a my opinion is as good as yours world where a kind of debased libertarianism held out by people who have never read John Stuart Mill uh, is, uh, uh, argues uh, that there should be no constraints on our behavior whatsoever uh, and there should uh, be no attempt by government or by uh, professional experts uh, to tell us the truth about any matter we should be able to decide uh, for ourselves. I think that spirit is more vigorously um, alive today than it has been uh, before. And one also points to the uh, effects of the Trump presidency uh, and the apparent secession of the Republican Party from politics as we know it. Uh, and instead, uh, Republican Party now practices something else. It would be hard to give it a name, but it isn't uh, standard politics. So that one could feel that, as you put it, the wheels are falling off. Uh, I have friends, uh, many, who believe uh, exactly that. Uh, there are people in the New York Times like Ezra Klein or other commentators who are sounding, uh, sounding that alarm but I still can't quite make myself feel that, that pessimistic. You still can't make yourself feel that pessimistic. Are you an optimist by nature? I guess I am an optimist by nature. I, I do think that things will work out. Uh, I mean, cause things don't always work out on every level. Uh, one is often disappointed in life in ways that cannot be recovered. Uh, but I think for me in general, things work out. But one must remember that back in the late 20s and early 30s, uh, there were assimilated Jews in Germany who probably felt the same way, who indeed I know from reading uh, documents and reports felt the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, that they felt that this place in, uh, in the culture of Germany uh, was, uh, was secure, uh, and that this particular uh, political regime uh, would pass into history and things uh, would return to something approaching the condition they knew. That didn't happen, as we, of course, know. Uh, but I, and I know that there are parallels to be drawn, but I can't quite today yet draw those parallels to the conclusion that the wheels are coming off uh, the democracy. Uh, as a registered Democrat, uh, more or less, shall I say, slightly left of center, not much left of center, I find myself, as usual, being disappointed in the inability of the Democratic Party uh, to uh, practice the art of politics uh, in, a, in a way that secures them victories. Uh, but perhaps they'll learn. Well, driving into the interview, I was thinking again about how much I enjoyed uh, how to write a sentence. And it occurred to me that something, a book along the lines that you're suggesting now might be a good Stanley Fish book. That is how to practice power politics from the left side and win 
Has anybody ever approached you, uh, given your your track record here, to write such a, a kind of crossover populist book? And no one has, and I'm not sure that I would be qualified uh, to do so. Uh, there are, of course, people like James Carvel, who is, at least as far as I know, not uh, an author, although he may have written something that I haven't uh, read, and, and, and others uh, who are offering recommendations and analyses, uh, but uh, uh, to uh, the political left uh, at this moment. Uh, mm -hmm. But as you know, Matthew, uh, I tend to stick to matters that I really believe I'm reasonably knowledgeable about. Mm -hmm. And though I think, as a, I think as an observer of the political scene, I'm uh, relatively well-informed. I'm, I'm probably not well-informed enough to write that kind of book. Mm -hmm. What about a book on that drew off of your experience as not just a successful academic in terms of scholarship, but as you moved into administrative positions? Um, I often think back to the class that I took with you on uh, First Amendment law at the Duke, it was in the Duke University Law School. And you at that time liked to take issue with Amy Gutman yes. and her vision of the world that you felt wanted to transform the world into a dinner party at Princeton. Exactly. And then you would often point out that it, as a resident of a long resident of academia, that the superficial pleasantries of our shared profession often fall away. And then you would turn very Miltonic in your, uh, in your language and say, you know, have they walked the halls with these, <laughs> with these colleagues that can often turn into a den of vipers. And yet you figured out how to manage them and create in the case of of Duke's English department, you know, perhaps the most powerful English department uh, at the time in America, you you have those skills. If I was an acquiring editor, I would uh, I would seek you out to write a book about how to succeed in in management and administration. Well, that's that is a possibility, and the lessons uh, that would be delivered could be delivered fairly succinctly. Uh, an administrator uh, is someone who is in charge of an operation that has a product and a goal, although in the academic uh, context, uh, the product is the advancement of knowledge and the goal is further progress along the road of that advancement. So it's not like the usual uh, product. But nevertheless, I think the principle that I would enunciate is the same across all administrative realms, which is to recognize the energies and talents uh, of those under your uh, administration and institute conditions that release those energies and talents rather than block them. Now that's a very general statement uh, and it would have to be fleshed out uh, with any number of examples. But if you go into administration with that idea, these people, instructors, staff members, students, are very talented people. Uh, they're unusually so, or else they would not have uh, uh, made it into this uh, particular position. 
let's find ways uh, to to uh, make their talent uh, uh, available both to them and therefore to us. Now, I'll give you a concrete example going back to the Duke English Department. When I became chairman of the Duke English Department, and I'm not going to name names here, uh, I discovered that there was a group of uh, what we might call lifetime associate professors. You probably remember at least a few of them. And what I discovered uh, uh, in part by talking to them, in part by just looking at the records, is that each of them had stalled at a certain point uh, because a project, uh, a significant project, had either been abandoned or had been uh, in process uh, so long that one felt confident that it would never be complete. I met with each of these and I uh, proposed the following bargain. Uh, if you will finish that project book edition, whatever it might be, uh, that you have either put on the shelf or work at only occasionally, occasionally, if you will finish that, I will get you promoted. Uh, and I felt that I could make that promise um, because I would be able to argue persuasively um, in whatever higher administration context was necessary for these people. And several of them did take advantage uh, of this offer. And one of them who didn't, I'll never forget this, said to me, I wish you would come here earlier. Mm -hmm. He didn't feel that at this stage uh, in his life, he was able uh, to uh, accept uh, the bargain uh, and do his part. That's just a small example. Mm -hmm. When I got to the University of Illinois at Chicago uh, as a dean, one of the things I noticed is that there was no faculty dining room. Uh, again, that doesn't seem to be at the heart of the academic enterprise, but in, in some ways it is, because it provides a place for conversation, for fellowship, for mutual recognition of, an, of, a, of, of, of a group identity. Uh, so I worked out a way to have a faculty uh, a dining room uh, built and persuaded administrator to juggle around some funds in, in, that were uh, in his control so that it could be done. That's the kind of thing you have to do as, a, as, as an administrator. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it's not a lesson difficult to impart. It may be a lesson difficult to execute. A good follow-up question would be to invite you to talk a little bit about what you see as the place of conferences, uh, including the one that I'm currently the director of, as well as others. And I wanted to start by reading a comment that you made in an interview some years back. You said, Flying down to Charlottesville is just an ordinary piece of business in the life of many academics. By Charlottesville, I don't mean all conferences are in Charlottesville, but I mean that people regularly go to conferences. It's really a phenomenon and it has changed the structure and the way that we do business as academics. Do you still think this observation is true today? I don't think that there is that much of that kind of thing going on today. Well, let me put it this way. If there is, I'm not being invited to it. Uh, <laughs> so perhaps I'm, I'm just ignorant. 
Uh, and I was speaking from a perspective uh, of being able to remember an earlier period, both in graduate school and in the first years uh, of my uh, uh, professional life at Berkeley, where there weren't conferences, there weren't visiting lecturers, uh, and there weren't that many visitors, that is people who came to visit uh, for uh, a semester. That all changed, the change in part because at least in the uh, early 60s, uh, funds uh, were made available uh, for the uh, setting up of conferences and other things. That all changed and what it meant is that the academic person uh, located necessarily in some specific town could become a cosmopolitan person, uh, could feel that his or her uh, home community uh, consisted not only of those people down the hall, but those people in England, France, Israel, Germany, uh, who shared uh, the same interests and were working on the same problems. Uh, when that happened, uh, the membership, your membership uh, as an academic, um, in a community extended uh, uh, around the world. Uh, and it was very exciting. Uh, it was also something, uh, I must confess, something of a boondoggle. That is, you could, you know, I remember my wife and I uh, and my daughter going to Italy uh, for a conference in a luxurious uh, place uh, on the sea. Um, where uh, all of the uh, food and the uh, surrounding serene, serene scenery was magnificent. And I remember thinking, well, I'm being paid to do this. I'm being given the funds to come to this conference uh, and to, in fact, to bring along uh, my family. That, that, was a wonderful, uh, that was a wonderful kind of experience. Now, will that happen again? Uh, I'm not sure because the availability of uh, technology like the technology that you and I uh, are using now uh, means that you can have conferences without anyone leaving uh, the comfort or discomfort of his or her uh, home study. Uh, so I bought a plane to go to Toronto um, uh, or to London or, or, or Paris or Munich or wherever it uh, might be. If that happens, then it, I think that there will be something uh, definitely lost. Um, and we will, to some extent, return to the moment where scholars um, had an individual relationship with their work and with a few of their colleagues, uh, as opposed to a real relation, or an expansive relationship with others. I hope you are enjoying my discussion with Stanley Fish. If you are, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and hit like. And as always, I would ask you to consider joining us for an upcoming LCLC conference. Consult the LouisvilleConference.com for details. Thanks again for listening, and please check back in two weeks to listen to the conclusion of the discussion with Stanley Fish.